Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont and Professor Richard LaDuke explore the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the life and teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. They examine the original historical sources and provide context for events of the past. They approach the history of the Church with faith, expertise, and humor. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, it's going to be a little bit different. As we said last week, that uh, this is missionary calling season. It's my favorite time of the year. It's a lot of fun. And uh, my son is preparing to serve a mission in Peru. And I have another son that's on a mission right now in uh, Barcelona. If you have any more people go on a mission, you're not going to be able to make your house <laughs> Actually, having them go on a mission has saved me so much money. The amount uh, of food that they ate, the things that they... It, it's, been, it's been great. We, we're saving of tens of thousands. Yeah, that they were in. We're saving tens of thousands of dollars a month. <laughs> <laughs> so. it's, a, it's a new financial plan for you and yours. If you are having a hard time making ends meet, send your kids on missions. So... Um, as as we're helping our son prepare for a mission, there's there's lots of things, right? There's the temporal things and uh, getting in the visa paperwork and and uh, buying all of the the things, and it's it's a fun and great time. And and sometimes I know this was the case for me at least is that uh, lost in some of that is some of the spiritual preparation that uh, that happens. And obviously, uh, reading preach my gospel or reading the Book of Mormon. Um, doing the uh, mission prep that maybe your ward or stake are doing. These are all um, fundamental things to help you prepare. But we wanted to help to do some things to help missionaries prepare. As, as I was working with our son Rigdon on, on this, and we identified a bunch of episodes, uh, old episodes that we felt are um, really valuable for him to understand more about the restored gospel. One of the things that uh, we've been doing on some of the premium episodes, uh, there was one particularly on the apostasy that was, I think, the first Joseph Smith and the Restoration episode that we did that my son listened to and really enjoyed and helped him gain a deeper understanding of what was being restored by the prophet Joseph Smith. And so... In this particular episode, we're going to just play the Joseph Smith and the Restoration episode that talks through the apostasy. It heavy with Paul. We go. We go heavy uh, with we're, uh, we're his Paul as any Protestant has ever wanted to be. Absolutely. And so, um, we hope that you enjoy this episode as we make it uh, put it on the free side for everyone to be able to listen to, and. Uh, at we hope that you sign up for our newsletter where we will have links to all of these episodes that are coming out that we would also recommend for anybody preparing to serve a mission wherever they might serve. The only question is now is my mom is going to probably, she's going to probably call me when she listens to this episode and say, I, I think I've heard you, I think I've heard this before. Well, she's a premium member. That's what I mean. Oh, 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 oh yes. In fact, <laughs> I'm pretty sure she's signed up multiple times. And, and you know, I really should, as a good son, 
figure out how to cancel the third and fourth time that she's it's, done it. It's interesting. My family, different tack. They say, hey, can you send me the uh, link to the Google Drive where you house these so I can listen for free? Very different, our families. Yeah, interesting. I, I need your family to support the podcast the way Renee supports the podcast. Thank you, Renee. We hope you enjoy this premium episode again. Welcome to Joseph Smith and the Restoration, a Standard of Truth podcast production. In this podcast, hosts Dr. Garrett Dirkmott and Professor Richard LaDuke will discuss the events of the Restoration in the order they occurred. Listeners will follow Joseph Smith as he rises from the obscurity of a poor farm boy to the prophet of the Restoration. They will learn of the trials and triumphs, the miracles and misery of Joseph Smith and early members of the church. Hi, welcome to Joseph Smith and the Restoration, part of the premium content of the Standard of Truth podcast productions. Thank you so much for for signing up, for joining us, so that we can have a deeper conversation about church history. And in this this podcast in particular, what we're going to do is we are going to chronologically work our way through the history of of the Restoration. I I don't know how long this will take. Uh, I think it will depend on how much detail we put on different things. We're obviously going to leave some things out unintentionally or maybe... We're just not that educated. And we'll we'll maybe spend time on things that 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 people love, maybe times and things that they wish we didn't. But the idea is to kind of provide a method of learning about the history of the restoration of the gospel, and in particular Joseph Smith, in a chronological way that that, that flows forward so that you could you can come back each time we drop a new episode and you've gained a little bit more of this path, this miraculous path of 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 God's unfolding of the restoration through Joseph Smith. That's one of the things we received a, a pretty decent amount of feedback that people wanted or they, they learned this way and uh, kind of the way that we read the Book of Mormon. If I understand the context of what's happening, it, it, it helps me to understand a little bit better what, what's going on. And so that's what we wanted to provide here. And, uh, and so we wanted to actually start um, with Joseph Smith and the restoration um, with uh, Moses. <laughs> Richard's being a little facetious, but uh, not, m- not much. Well, the part of the part of the problem is when you talk about the restoration. One of the great questions is, well, what is it that Joseph Smith is restoring? And you know, I've mentioned this on the Standard of Truth podcast. One of the more fascinating things to me when I meet with people who are struggling with their their questions of faith, questions of church history, is just how little people consider the radical nature of what it is that we believe. Sometimes people become disaffected by the church or or struggle with some of the the aspects of, of its history. And they think that what is taught in the church can be found other places where they assume that it can be. Uh, it, it is not an uncommon thing for someone to believe in the preexistence even after they've left the church. Well, the, the great contradiction is that the only reason why you believe in a preexistence is because of the church, is because of Joseph Smith. 
sometimes, I mean, look, we're all, we're all humans and we all want to have our cake and then eat it too. We all, we all want what it is that we want, whatever makes us comfortable. But when it comes to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so many of our doctrines and beliefs are completely opposite, separate, far different from Christians in, in the traditional sense in the world. And those, those differences matter. They matter because they are the crux of, of why it is we believe what we believe. Uh, you know, I know it's easy to get bogged down every every Sunday in thinking that what we really believe is, you know, you know whether or not we we should have sang arrest him with as much time as we had left. You know, and the, the things you focus on on the minutia on on an everyday level. Sometimes we we lose sight of what it is we actually have. Also, because of the the internet world that we live in we often are confronted with the things that we don't have, the things we don't have knowledge about. Why don't we know how marriage will work in the next life? I don't know. I don't know why that hasn't been revealed. We don't know exactly how ceilings are going to be adjudicated in the next life. Prophets have said, we don't know how it's going to work. And yet we so desperately want to know how it's going to work that sometimes the fact that we don't know causes us to question the very thing that we were asking the question about, right? If you, because you don't know how ceilings will work in the next life, stop believing that Joseph Smith was a prophet, well, then you no longer even need an answer to your question because the only reason why you believe that ceilings exist in the next life is because Joseph Smith was a prophet. It's an example of a unique doctrine of the restoration that makes us who we are. It's central to what we believe. It's not just a a simple thing or a throwaway thing. It's a central aspect of what we believe, and it is rejected by every other person out there that calls themselves a Christian. So in part, as we study the restoration, We want to talk about what it is that other people believe, not because we want to mock them, not because we're saying, oh, look at how wrong they are, but because I really believe a depth of a testimony is is at least in part delivered when you recognize what it is that is the alternative. When you realize that yes, there are questions that you can't answer, but here are some questions that no Christian can answer, but that you have an answer for. No one has an answer to every question. And maybe that's uh, you know a, a fitting place to start our discussion of Joseph Smith and the Restoration, because he comes to God with a question. In order to set the table, though, Richard was, you know, only slightly mocking me by saying that we were going to go back to Moses. Well, it is it is funny. We in in the pre-production meetings, as when, we as when we say pre-production meetings, why don't you tell Richard? Why don't you tell them what that what that consists of? Well, it's mostly uh, twenty years of Garrett's research while I'm eating a Chick Fil A sandwich, saying, "What are we going to talk about?" And he was very desperate to get the uh, Polynesian sauce. Oh, I yeah, love it. yeah, yeah. It was very. I, I mean, 
when we discuss this, you know, where do you start? Because the point of Joseph Smith's question that day in the grove is the utter confusion that he saw around him in the religious world. In his multiple accounts that he gives of the first vision, one of the things that is pretty consistent is there are lots of people that keep telling me one thing and then lots of other people who keep telling me another thing. Why? Why is it that there are so many different beliefs and and where does that originate from? And so we are not going to be exhaustive. I know that that's what you paid for. You paid for me to put you to sleep while you were driving. But in fact, we are we're not going to be exhaustive. We're we're going to you know kind of give an overview of some things and with other things we'll spend more time on them because they matter more. I think a great place to start uh whenever you're talking about about you know God is the great apostasy. Uh, what, what a great place to start. The loss of faith. Um, <laughs> it, it, just as a quick aside, uh, it is possible that we don't actually get to Joseph Smith for several months. I want you to just keep holding out hope that eventually... We, we mentioned him today. We did. It's true. Um, you know, one of the great contradictions, I mentioned this in one of our, our Standard of Truth podcasts uh, recently, one of the great contradictions inside of Christianity is that the Protestant world, and, and most Americans are more uh, familiar with Protestant theology than they are with Catholic theology, but in the Protestant world, one of the main arguments of Protestants, one of the main arguments of Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and, and many other you know uh, reformers was that the Catholic Church had become corrupted, right? One of their primary arguments is, when Jesus taught this, it was right, and you guys went and started selling indulgences. I mean, one of the, one of the primary arguments is, there was truth that has somehow been fallen away from. Now, Protestants don't argue that there was some kind of priesthood power and authority that was eventually taken from the earth in part because they don't argue that there's anything that like hands on head passed down authority. Authority comes from belief, which is an easy position to take when you no longer believe that any uh, ordinances are saving, right? Once, you know, look, of course we're still going to do baptisms, but once you get to the point where you say baptism does not save you at all, then does it really make a difference whether someone who was properly ordained baptized you or Uncle Bill baptized you? And, and we're assuming at this point Uncle Bill isn't an ordained minister, right? What, what difference would it make when the baptism itself is nothing but a symbol to God of your devotion to him? It, it's not saving. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. So uh, one, one of the great contradictions that I you see in Christianity, and maybe this is part of what Joseph saw too, is Protestants are adamant, adamant that the Catholic Church went astray. And they are simply trying to restore, reform the church back to what it was originally from Jesus. So you don't have to have too long. You want to find a Baptist agreeing with you as a Latter-day Saint? Have a conversation with them about the Catholic Church being an apostate group. 
A Baptist will readily agree. If you start the conversation with, so do you think the Pope is really Christ's vicar on earth? I'm going to go out on a limb and say your Baptist friend is not going to say that he is. It's a pretty fair argument. Yeah, right. So you actually agree. You actually agree with your Protestant friend that somewhere along the line, the church went a different direction. So then it's almost a matter of when did it and, and, and how, how far, far did it. Did it. Now, in Protestant theology, the how far doesn't really matter because once you start to say that authority doesn't actually exist. Now, of course, again, if you happen to be if you happen to be a Methodist, thank you so much who is for paying for in the, the premium. premium content subscribing to this podcast. You are a dedicated to your anti-Mormonism. I mean, you you have sought them out through the the holes in the nests. You have ranged the earth. If uh, you know what I, you almost thou persuadest me to become Methodist. If that's what you're doing, um, but it. it because Protestants reject the idea of hands-on-head, lineal, passed-down authority, this their, their argument is going to be, well, authority comes from properly believing in Jesus and having faith that you're saved by the grace of Jesus. And so I don't need the church to, to, to do that. I had this uh, represented to me on my mission for the first time when they talked about a royal priesthood, yep. and I Paul interpreted, said, yep. I, I interpreted it to be, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying, and then they said, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying, right? Because one of the key aspects of the Reformation, which we'll spend more time on, don't worry, um, is this rejection of lineal hands-on-head priesthood. In fact, I would guess that that's one of the least understood aspects about Latter-day Saint theology. Um, that that uh, members of the church don't themselves understand in a difference from other Christians. Because you'll hear Latter-day Saints say all the time, you know, we believe you have to be baptized by authority. Well, a Protestant hears that phrase and they're like, yeah, of course, someone who has faith has to baptize you. No, no I mean like someone has to give you authority. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, people aren't just grabbing people off of the street and throwing them into bathtubs. It's not like Richard getting bar mitzvahed in New York. Where someone's just driving an RV around. He was a rabbi. Well, right. No, it wasn't, no. <laughs> some, it wasn't some like strange dude. That okay, was... well, but Richard was. He was drive by bar mitzvah. That's true. Yeah, Sixth Avenue, New York, in a mitzvah tank. It was just. It was just there. It was there. Yeah, but it was a pretty nice RV. It's very nice. Yeah, it was about a forty footer. Oh wow. Yeah, maybe maybe I need to get bar mitzvah. <laughs> yeah, and can I borrow this for the weekend? Um, at any rate, the. This this is something that, that's not very well understood. And hopefully as we talk about the Reformation and the way that it unfolds, it will help a Latter-day Saint listening understand this divide between what they believe and what their Christian friend believes. Because we actually make it a big deal. We actually make a big point. I thought, I tell you, when I went on my mission, you know, first of all, I thought anyone would listen to me ever. That's what I thought before I got there. <laughs> Very soon after I got there, I realized, oh, wait, this is just a never-ending series of people pronouncing profanities at me while they slam a door in my face. And if you are a young listener, missions are great. Please go on a mission. Absolutely yeah, should go. They're the absolutely most, wonderful. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I didn't go on a mission. 100%. If you want your own podcast someday, 
you got to go on a mission. If you're a young listener, please. But the, this concept of authority, I thought would be super persuasive to people. When On the off chances that people let us teach them, I would like lean into it. I'd be like, and then Joseph Smith. I, I guess I didn't have a deep. <laughs> on my mission, I had a deeper voice. On my mission, it was, and then Joseph Smith received authority. Um, I thought that that would like really click with people. And it never did. It never did. And you know, the, the, you know, the, the definition of insanity is you just keep expecting different results. I always thought when I tell them about John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John coming back, they are going to be hooked. And they all kind of looked at me with a vacant stare and blinked and asked what the score in the Packers game was. I mean, it, it just wasn't the deciding factor I thought it was. And part of the reason it wasn't is because when I say authority, when I say power, it means something entirely different than what my Christian friend means when they say it. They don't believe that there are any saving ordinances. So therefore, you certainly don't have to have any so-called authority handed to you by someone confirming you on your head or ordaining you to perform those ordinances. Why would you? Ordinances are authoritative in as much as you have faith in Jesus. And if you have faith in Jesus then that's all that actually matters. So on the Protestant side of things, there's already a gigantic gulf between Latter-day Saints and, and where they're at because one of the things that Joseph Smith is going to learn even before there's a church is that baptism is not just what we do because God told us to, that baptism is essential for salvation. There hasn't been a Protestant saying that baptism is essential for salvation since, you know, in the 300 years following Luther, at least not one that was accepted by the rest of the community. All of the mainline Protestant groups, Lutheranism, Congregationalism, which is what Puritans were, Anglicanism, which is the Church of England, which is what most early American settlers were, uh, and especially in the South, Episcopalianism is what you call it today. Uh, in America is what you call it. They don't call it that in England. They're still a little a angry that we stopped calling it Anglicanism. But don't worry, there's almost no Episcopalians left in America, so it makes no difference. Um, uh, Baptists, uh, who are frankly an offshoot of Congregationalists, but if you're a Baptist listening again, thank you very much for your subscription. I appreciate you really digging in. Uh, and I'm not saying you're anything like Congregationalists. I'm saying that Roger Williams was a Congregationalist before he left and founded the Baptist Church in America. That's what I'm saying. Um, and then even with, with Methodists, all of them see baptism as important. In fact, it's, it's literally the name of the Baptist Church, adult baptism. Baptism, when you are making a personal demonstration of your covenant and commitment to Jesus to the world is a very sacred and special thing to a Baptist. But if you ask him or her, does that baptism save you? If they know their catechism of any kind, if they know in any way their, their, their doctrine of their theology, they'll say, no, the only thing that saves you is faith. Well, what if I wasn't baptized? Thief on the cross wasn't baptized, was he? 
and today thou shalt be with me in paradise, right? On the other side of the spectrum, you have, you know, a billion Catholics in the world. Um, and on top of that, uh, you know, millions and millions and millions of people who follow the Eastern Orthodox tradition, you know, so uh, whether it's Armenian or Russian Orthodox or, or now Ukrainian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox, there's multiple Orthodox churches that broke off from the Catholic Church many, many years ago, um, where they still claim that ordinances have to be performed by authority and that that authority is passed down lineally. So Latter-day Saints are actually much closer to Catholics in that regard. Um, and, and you might have found, uh, if you've ever tried to share the gospel with people, that it's sometimes easier to share the gospel with someone who's Catholic because they believe there are certain sins you can't do, right? That you, yep, nope, you can't do this. You can't do that. I have to live a certain way. They believe that there are things you have to do to go to heaven. And they believe that things like baptism and confirmation aren't just outward signs of your inward commitment, but that they're actually essential for heaven. You don't have to argue with a Catholic to convince them that baptism is essential. No one's ever been teaching a Catholic, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, in in a missionary setting where the Catholic person was just like, "I just, I just can't come to terms with the fact that you have to be baptized. I've, I've never even heard of that. Why are you in my house?" You might have had that conversation with someone who is a, a, a Protestant. You might. You might have had that conversation with with someone who's a, a a a Pentecostal, who absolutely believes in baptism, but when you're saying I have to be baptized to be saved, I don't I don't have to do anything except have faith. That's the only thing I have to do. Those are pretty far apart. So on the Catholic side of the argument, the argument would be, well, what do you mean that there was an apostasy? You know, for Protestants, they're saying, look, there's obvious falling away from the truth. But now we're going to have an argument as to which degree there was. What were they wrong about? What? Okay, I get it. You don't like indulgences, but what about this? Uh, I get it that you're not okay with transubstantiation, but what about this? For a Protestant, they can say, yes, but anyone who believed in Jesus all throughout that time, anyone who had the proper thought that faith in Jesus saves me, they were the real quote-unquote church and the Catholic Church was just this false organization that had grown up around the church. Individual salvation, individual authority. On the Catholic side of the ledger, the argument would be, what is your evidence that there was a falling away from the truth? I mean, I, I get it that Martin Luther doesn't like indulgences, but you Latter-day Saints are claiming that there was a great apostasy. You're claiming that there was a, a wholesale departure from, from the church of Jesus. And I heard many, many times upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And therefore, how could it be possible? Or, I mean, it, it's interesting because um, Catholics would say God would not have allowed his church to go into apostasy. And Protestants would say God would not have allowed errors to have been entered into the Bible. So both, it's very funny, right? I mean, now, of course, a Protestant will say that, but for 1,500 years, 
the Catholic Bible had the Apocrypha books in it and God didn't stop that. You know, where were you on that one, God? I mean, I, I get it that now, I mean, it's it's always easy to, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, Martin Luther, but but uh, it, did God just not care about people getting the false, you know, scripture in 1100 AD? 1100, he didn't care. He finally started caring in, in 1517. You can see part of the problem with, with both of these dichotomies on both sides is there is a, essentially an argument that God couldn't have allowed there to be either an atrophy of scripture or an atrophy of authority, that both of those could not have occurred. They're both arguing for different reasons, but they're arguing it. Now, Christian scholars, um, who are not necessarily Christians themselves, <laughs> let, me, let me rephrase that. Scholars who study Christianity, who study early Christian history. One of the things that they see as a myth is the myth of this proto-orthodoxy or early orthodoxy of what the Catholic Church and what Christianity would eventually become. The way that heresiologists, um, men like Irenaeus who wrote about the heresies in the early Christian church, um, uh, they, they saw heresies as, as derivations from what was the proper truth, right? So, so you have the proper truth, which is, you know, on down the line, everything, you know, Peter and Linus and just keep going down the line with popes and, and, and the doctrine's pure and everything's great. But once in a while you have these crazy guys like Arius who come up and say, wait a minute, I think God created Jesus. And, and the way it's presented is that you have the truth, which is the trunk of your tree. And you have this wild offshoot branch from the trunk. Now that there's a reason why Catholics want to present their history that way, because that means they've always been the trunk and and you're always defining heresy as, are you what I am? Nope. Heresy. And it makes it very easy. Like it's very, it's very simple. It's what I do. Yeah. That's how we, it's frankly, it's what we do in the Latter-day Saint church all the time too. Like, well, are you a Latter-day Saint? Well, no. Okay. Well then I guess you weren't baptized by authority. No, no, I was. Are you a Latter-day Saint? No. Okay. Well, then I restate. Heresy. No, you were yeah, heresy. No, but you weren't baptized by authority. Um, why I say that this is uh, something that it's a contested space is scholars of early Christian history instead argue about it. It might actually be more beneficial to say early Christianities than it is early Christianity. Uh, that instead of saying, oh, this is what everyone believed, well, why exactly do we believe that everyone believed that? Look, I understand why a Catholic argues it. A Catholic argues it because Peter became the first bishop of Rome and gave his keys to the next bishop of Rome and they were passed down and that's where it came from. But as a, as a historian of early Christi Christianity, why would I believe that everyone believed the same thing? Now think about our world today. We have 
We have the internet. We have television. We have radio. We have the printing press. We have books. We have subreddits. We have all kinds of things. We have premium podcasts. We have premium podcasts that maybe people try to cancel after listening to one episode. And they find out that, no, no, you're not getting that money back. Um, We have all kinds of ways of delivering content. And yet, look at the radical diversity of thought that exists. Think about your own congregation in your own ward. I want you to think right now, everyone in your ward, you know that man or woman who is so right-wing in their thinking, like that they are are certain that, that Rush Limbaugh was a communist because he wasn't right-wing enough, right? You also know someone in that same congregation who is so left when they found out that Bernie Sanders had a vacation home, they called him a sellout, right? That they, They're so far, they can't even, that Bernie isn't even, he's not even, he, he's dead to me, right? And they're in the same ward and they have radically different beliefs. It's not because they're not listening to the same general conference. It's not because they're not reading the same Book of Mormon or reading the same Bible. They all have access to the same stuff on, on, on churchofjesuschrist.org. Well, why do they have such radically different beliefs? Now, I, I was mentioning politics rather than religion, but I think we also know that too. Everyone knows someone in their ward who is a really great person. And yet they have one belief that they've expressed to you or from the pulpit or every time they bear their testimony that is not what the church actually teaches. Well, how did they get that false belief? Where did it come from? Do you think they woke up one day and they're just like, you know what? I'm going to start believing a heresy. That's what I'm going to do. You know, I've decided I'm going, you know what? I'm going the other way. The, The problem with heresies, right? The problem with them is that when people believe them, they obviously don't believe that they're heresies. They think they have a proper understanding. No one, well, no one in their right mind, I guess. I'm going to make a little bit of a caveat for crazy people. okay? But no one in their right mind knowingly believes something that they know is false. Now, that would be a tautology, right? If I came to know that what I believed was false, then I would stop believing in it. That's, that's the expectation. I mean, if, if, I, if I believe that when I turn the light on in this room, that the light will come on, and I flick that switch, but there's not a light bulb in the light, and no light comes on, I, I, I probably am going to abandon the belief that flicking the light back up and on and up and on, that eventually light will come into the room. I change my belief because, oh, there isn't a light bulb. So I guess it'll never become light. Save some miracle. Um, I think that that's, that's an important thing to understand. There are a multitude of various different Christian beliefs that come out of the early apostolic times in, in the church. And you're thinking, well, well, really? I mean, how could there be so many different beliefs that come so quickly? 
probably one of the great places to go. If you're ever wondering, if you're ever in a discussion with one of your Christian friends about whether or not there was apostasy in the early church, a great place to go is Galatians. Uh, Galatians is uh, one of the letters of Paul. And I think you get a really good sense of, of, now this is the very opening of the letter. Now, Paul has preached in Galatia. He's been the instrument of having many people baptized. I don't know how many Paul actually baptized. You know, of course he, he is, is very keen to say that, he's you know, patting the numbers for Peter. Well, right. He was, <laughs> you know, Paul's calling into the district leader and saying, yeah, yeah, no, we had 15 you know, discussions. So many discussions. Yeah. You know, no, no, they were all Gentiles. Um, the uh, the way that he opens this letter should really give pause to the to the idea that many Christians have that no no you know once the, when the apostles were there everyone believed the right things. Paul, an apostle, not by of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which were with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul has mastered the, the management technique of opening with some praise. I mean, it's a compliment sandwich. Yes, is very, what it is. yes. but Paul decides to make his compliment sandwich of a very thin... <laughs> slice of bruschetta and almost an entire ham underneath that very, very paper thin, wafer thin beginning of the compliment. But he does start with, you know, grace be to you and peace from God the Father. I don't know why Paul tells them peace be to you and then begins what he has to say. I, you know, I'm, I, I pray that God gives you his peace. God hates you. I mean, he doesn't say that, but he's he's very angry. I mean, and so when he opens, that's like the beginning of his letter. When he first starts to actually say something outside of the niceties is verse six. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than ye have received, let him be accursed. How do you think Paul feels about what's going on in Galatia? So this is this is one of my all time because I I envision what's happening here, right? That that Paul was he was preaching a message, and so when did the apostasy start in Galatia? The second Paul turned around yeah. and stepped, Paul out. was like, "I'm on my way to Thessalonica. What are you guys doing? <laughs> I just left." Yeah, yeah, I mean, frankly, it, it the reality of Paul's letters are not that, wow, you guys are all just doing a great job. Yeah, you're killing it. Your home teaching numbers are way up. I mean, think about the purpose of the writing of Corinthians. Okay, Paul has, again, preached to the Corinthians. And there's a pretty fundamental thing for Paul about Jesus. And that is that he was resurrected. It's a big deal for Paul. 
Now, remember, Paul was a Pharisee, right? And Pharisees believed in the resurrection. So this was a pre-existing belief for Paul. Back when he was Saul, when he was Saul the, the persecutor instead of Paul the apostle, right? But that wasn't a belief he had. To, he didn't have to change the belief in resurrection, in part because Jesus appeared to him and Paul was certain of the resurrection. But in teaching these Greek Gentiles the gospel, who loved to embrace the idea of Jesus being God, they were very loath to embrace the idea of resurrection. Now, when Paul went and preached to them, I'm pretty sure that he said, guys, Jesus was resurrected. And then Paul left. What happened in his absence? They weren't having arguments about, do you think Jesus was resurrected on the third day and then came out on the third and a half day? Do you think that maybe that that when Jesus was resurrected, that all of the same molecules, which they didn't believe actually existed because they didn't know what molecules were, but whatever they decided to call that, each part of him came back and he was it was all back to normal? Or, or do you think he actually, his body decayed before that happened in any way? They weren't having these kinds of arguments about, the manner in which the resurrection took place. They were having arguments about the resurrection not occurring at all. That's not because Paul came and said, you know what? I'm going to hold back. The most important part of the gospel to me is the resurrection. I'm not going to talk about it. Whereas, you know what? Let's talk about whether or not you should buy, you should, uh, you know, purchase meat that was sacrificed to idols. That's my number one. <laughs> And then second, we'll move on. You know, obviously it was a key part of Paul's message. Even even agnostic uh, uh, historians of, of the early Christian church, even they acknowledge Paul is adamant in all of his writings that the resurrection is a physical, real resurrection. This is not some kind of spiritual thing where, you know, Jesus just spiritually got raised up to God and we're all going to be spiritually raised up to God. No, no. For Paul, the historical record is very clear. He believes like the Pharisees before him in that valley of bones from Ezekiel and bone joining bone and sinew joining sinew and people getting their bodies back. That was a really, really difficult concept for early Greek Christians. Because they came from a worldview in which the body was maybe not necessarily an evil thing, but the body is what allowed you to do evil things, right? The body was the body was corrupt. The body wasn't the body was an issue. I mean there were even, you know, some radical Greek philosophers who advocated suicide. Why? Well, because now you're outside of your body and the body's a problem. Why would you be limited by having a body? A body constrains you. Why would you want it back? People associated the body with suffering. They associated the body with disease. They associated the body with limitation. So you can see why a Greek Christian who's just learned about Jesus, oh my goodness, Jesus is the, is, is, is the only God. Jesus is the great God. 
Jesus did these miracles. That's incredible because that's how they're hearing the stories. Jesus' miracles. That they might say, well, wait a minute. What do you, what do you mean he, he got his body back? Why if, he was, why if he's an all-powerful God, why does he need a body? Like that's the best part about being an all-powerful God. You don't need a body and can still do everything. And so you can see that when you go to 1 Corinthians that Paul, he spends much of this of this letter trying to help them understand. You know, there's other parts of the questions. He's answering questions about, about uh, you know, how to worship. He's answering questions about, you know, marriage and how marriage is supposed to be. Um, but it's, it's in verse 15, uh, sorry, in chapter 15, that he reiterates this. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, which ye are also saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. I always thought this verse is it's a very odd one, especially for Calvinists. Now, we'll, we'll talk later. Don't you worry. We'll spend some time on Calvinism. But the entire essence of Calvinist thought is that God predestines who is going to be saved. And therefore, anyone who has faith has faith because God gave it to them. And because they didn't do anything to get their faith, God gave it to them and God doesn't make mistakes. They can't fall from that grace. How could they? They did nothing to merit it. God didn't give them grace because they were wonderfully great people. God gave them grace because he could. And so he did. And that, that's it. So if you didn't do anything to merit grace, then how could you lose it? How could God make a mistake? And yet, by which you are also saved, if. Well, well that's a problem. So now my salvation has an if statement. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain. Well, that's a pretty big contradiction in terms. Because you can't actually believe and have faith in Jesus in vain if God gave you that faith. Paul is suggesting that it's more than just saying that you believe or having that belief. And the way that a Calvinist theologian would deal with this is, well, what Paul means is, that you thought that you had belief, but you didn't actually have belief. Now, that's not what the, the verse says, right? So now we're just putting new words in the Bible, but that's what, that's what the response would be. For I delivered unto you, first of all, which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul seems to have his first principles and ordinances of the gospel pretty tight. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was resurrected. And, and please pass the hummus. I mean, wait, at this point, he, he, that is the fundamental of what, what Paul is teaching. Jesus died for your sins. And the same Jesus who died for your sins was physically resurrected. And then after he was resurrected, to prove the point that he was resurrected, Paul starts listing all the people that saw resurrected Jesus. He was seen of Cephas, Peter, and then of the 12. So he's seen by 13 people at that point. Well, Peter's part of the 12. So he's seen by Peter. 
And really, they see, minus Judas. Yeah, but before they call Matthias, maybe. I mean, well, when they see him above the five hundred brethren at once, that was after Matthias. So you can read First Corinthians fifteen and try to come up with your own count. Please email us with your count of people who saw the resurrected Savior, uh, according to First Corinthians fifteen. After that, he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under the present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James, and then, again, I'm guessing, of all the apostles. Paul is making a list of all of the appearances of Jesus. Why? It's not to prove that Jesus died for people's sins, which is the first part of his argument. It's the second part of his argument. These Greek Christians are more than willing to believe that Jesus died for their sins, but they're unwilling to believe that physical resurrection either occurred for Jesus and certainly wouldn't occur for them. So what does Paul do? Uh, Last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon me and was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it be whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul's getting right to the meat of it here with the Corinthians. What I preached to you was that Jesus died for your sins and that he was resurrected. And the reason I'm writing to you is I'm now hearing that there are lots of people among you saying that there is no resurrection, even though that's the whole point of what I said to you. And if, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Oh, so you're saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Oh, oh well, maybe just Christ was resurrected. Maybe, maybe that's what some people were saying. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is vain also. This is the reason why a historian will say, look, resurrection is not a passing detail to Paul. He's saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't believe in Jesus, period. There is no Jesus without resurrection. What makes Jesus Jesus is resurrection. I'm sure an evangelical listening to me right now is excited about that. And again, thank you for signing up for the premium content. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. This is verse 15. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if it so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? Right? The the contradiction, the very argument that there can't be a resurrection of the dead, Paul's, the entire religion we're talking about is based upon Raising someone from the dead. How could you possibly believe that people can't be raised from the dead when the entire point of believing in Jesus is that he was resurrected? You can see Paul's grow. It's very frustrating. You can, you can feel the frustration. Logically, your argument that people can't be resurrected has no logical basis because the only reason you believe in resurrection is that Jesus was resurrected, right? And the whole point of Christianity is Jesus resurrected. 
Uh, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Because remember, they're embracing the fact that Jesus forgave them of their sins, but not that a physical resurrection. Paul's response is, uh, you don't get resur- you don't get forgiveness of your sins with an unresurrected Jesus. And, and to your point, this is being preached to people that are followers of Paul. Paul is writing a letter, he says, to the church in Corinth. This is not a letter to the you know the people who are praying to the unknown God at the top of Mars Hill. This is not a letter to the Gentiles. This is not Paul trying to like, hey, I know you worshipped Zeus last week, but have you thought about Jesus? It could happen. You know, these are people who are Christians. This is why Paul is so frustrated. I feel like Paul is like me. Well, no. Okay. No, keep no, 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 no follow no, through with it. No, where no, are you going? No, at this point, no. Paul is an apostle. I'm not. Paul had authority. I didn't. Paul had real experiences with Jesus. I am a lowly piece of garbage. <laughs> I need everyone to understand. All right, fair enough. In the smallest <laughs> nth degree, I I understand a tiny portion of his frustration when I will talk to people who are certain that Joseph Smith is not a prophet and also certain that they will have a marriage in eternity, that marriage will exist in the next life. That's a pretty big contradiction because the only reason why you believe in marriage existing in the next life is because Joseph Smith revealed that. So you see, it's pretty contradictory to say, oh yeah, Joseph Smith, absolutely false prophet. Everything he said was false. Nothing he said was true. Yeah, I believe that we're going to be married for eternity. Right? Paul is feeling the same frustration. You don't get to just pick and choose what part of Jesus that you believe in. You're a Christian because you believe in Jesus. And believing in Jesus means believing that he was resurrected. He goes on. I'll I'll finish his his rant here. um, uh, Then they which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Now he says, if Christ be not raised and your faith is in vain and you are in your sins and they which have fallen asleep in Christ. So the people that you thought were saved because they believed, they've perished. If there's no resurrection. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. That is one of the most beautiful things in the entire New Testament. And frankly, is it encapsulates what it is to be a believer. It, it had more power back then uh, because these Greek pagans, former pagans that he was preaching to, these new Greek Christians, that's exactly what religion was to everyone in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the point of worshiping Zeus was for Zeus to do something for you right now. There was no heaven. There was no happy hunting ground. There was no, I mean, even in the best of afterlife scenarios that are presented in the ancient world, they're all pretty terrible. None are as good as mortality. So when you worshiped Athena, you didn't do it because I can't wait for Athena to take me to some Greek celestial kingdom. You worship Athena because I want my crops to grow now. 
I want my my bread to 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 be sold at the market for a high price now. I want my son to come back from battle now. The point of worshiping gods in the ancient world was to get immediate blessings. That's why Jesus was so radical. Because when he comes, the point of worshiping him is the next life. In the world you will have tribulation, but fear not, I've overcome the world. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through to steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The point of Christianity was that you weren't going to get those blessings until, not the ultimate realization, until the next life. That's why Paul says, if in this life only we hope in Christ, if the only reason why we worship Jesus is for him to give us good presence like an intergalactic Santa Claus while we're alive, then we are of all men most miserable because we're making all kinds of sacrifices that pagans aren't making, right? We, we are following all kinds of rules. We're following all kinds of commandments. We're doing all kinds of things, not because we're going to get a blessing in this life, but because we believe in a blessing in the next life. So I love that phrase from Paul there that, you know, if we have in this life only to hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. As Paul continues, he says, but now, now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. It's very important to, to Paul. It's not just that Jesus was resurrected. He's the first fruits. He's the beginning, like the first apple of the harvest. Everyone's going to be resurrected. For since by man came death, By man also came the resurrection of the dead, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Sometimes that verse is taken to read as a spiritual rebirth. Oh, as in Adam we all die spiritually. That's clearly not what Paul is saying. He is saying, like Adam was a mortal and he died, and so we all physically die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, why do I spend a little bit of time on this with the Galatians and the Christians? And we could spend some time in Thessalonians is the same. Paul is arguing that there are people that are preaching false things. The point is this. For Christians who would argue that God would not have allowed his church to go into apostasy, what is their evidence of this? When we read the New Testament, Almost every letter of Paul is one lengthy, repeated, what are you guys doing? I was just there. You stopped believing in the resurrection? This isn't like deciding to not have the teachers prepare the sacrament on Sunday. You stopped believing in the resurrection. It was there a week ago. We, we, had, we, we went to that nice Mediterranean cafe. Don't you remember? And now you're saying that there is no resurrection? He's writing to the Galatians. I marvel. Paul is stunned. I was just there. How could you possibly believe these heresies that you believe? And so now you need to ask yourself this question. If when Paul, arguably and, and not even arguably, the greatest missionary of all time, right? You know, 
sorry for those of you who are like Wilford Woodruff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let, let, Wilford's going to give him a run for his money, but <laughs> but Paul Paul's Paul is converting thousands, right? In fact, uh, they did a survey of uh, this. Just shows you, how, frankly, how stupid historians are. Uh, but they did a survey of early, you know, Christian—not uh, early Christian historians, but a survey of, of historians of Western civilization—and they asked them uh, who are the most important people in Western civilization. And in that survey, this was about ten years ago, Paul came in ahead of Jesus. Now you can see why that would be a problem, right? Well, well, you know, there's not really a Paul without Jesus, so don't you have to make Jesus? For, and the argument from those historians, and I'm not saying I agree with it. Please don't write in. I don't agree. Um, that you can still write in. Just don't write in angry about that. At least be angry about something I've actually done. There's plenty. Or you know what? Let's change it up. Let's be angry about something Richard said. I've said plenty. Of That's what I'm saying. I need you know, Becky. I need you to write in. I need you to write it about something Richard has done. Um, Paul, Paul, the, the argument being that, you know, Christianity wouldn't have become a global religion without Paul because Paul traveled and took the gospel everywhere, took it to the Gentiles before Paul. It wasn't going to the Gentiles, right? And so that, that he had greater impact because Jesus was local, you know, Jewish preacher preaching of a, of a coming kingdom. Paul made Christianity main, you know, mainstream eventually led to the adoption of the Roman empire and the founding of, of, in the Western world of a Christian, a Christendom. Paul. So I, it's at least arguable and you'd find historians to back you up that Paul is the greatest missionary in Christendom, that he did more to spread the gospel than literally anyone. He certainly had a greater impact in his spreading of the gospel than literally anyone. If Paul, the greatest missionary in the history of ever, is preaching to people, converting them, and the very next communication he sends to them is, what the heck is wrong with you guys? I marvel. How could you have left the the resurrection? And that's all just in Paul's lifetime. In Paul's lifetime, it appears he is constantly battling with these forces of entropy that are trying to pull away from the gospel that he taught and add different ideas in. So the question becomes, if Paul, the greatest missionary, the apostle, along with the quorum of the 12 that was there at the time, if Paul and the other apostles are desperately struggling to contain false teaching and ideas while they are alive, what do you think happens when they are not? Is the person who comes after Paul just like a way better teacher than he was? Like Paul couldn't contain the heresies, but you know who can? Cletus. Cletus. Everyone has always said that. You know what? I guarantee Linus has got it. I'm not saying that there weren't great Christians. And and please don't misunderstand my discussion here. I'm not saying that these people aren't believers. Paul recognizes that these Corinthians are believers. They're just believing in wrong things. And he's trying to contain that wrong understanding. And and so I think that's, that's kind of the, 
the way to think about the growing apostasy in the years after Jesus, in some ways, so not everything was restored. We know this from Doctrine and Covenants section 124, right? Joseph Smith is told that in the Nauvoo Temple, God was going to reveal things that had never been revealed since the foundation of the world. So when we talk about it being a restoration, it doesn't have to mean that you know, there were ward mission leaders in Jesus's church. The restoration is the restoration of the authority to act in God's name in his church. It's the restoration of true beliefs that perhaps were once taught or maybe hadn't ever been revealed, but in any case, they're being authoritatively taught by a prophet of God. The restoration is not that every single thing we have in the church today. I mean, I once was talking, <laughs> once was talking to a very snarky person who is on their way out of the church, who who said it's not like something to the effect of. He he said I I, I didn't see church librarians in Jesus's church. And he was being snarky about the fact that that was the calling that he had held. Well, you know, it's Jesus's church. Oh yeah, where's the church librarian? He wasn't very good at arguing, but at any point, at any rate, the, the, the idea isn't that every single thing that's in the church today was literally in Jesus's church. You know, Jesus is, 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 you know, is going to suffer the crucifixion only three years into his teaching. The apostles are going to all be murdered roughly within 30 to 40 years outside of John of, of Jesus's resurrection. If Paul, the greatest of all the apostles, when it comes to preaching, the one who's done the most, obviously Peter might hold the keys, but Paul's the one out there. These are the people that Paul brought to baptism. If he can't contain their false ideas, and he's desperately trying, we know that he's written even more letters than we have in the Bible. He references other letters that he wrote. Then what do you think happens when there is no Paul? When there's more people but less control. There's more believers, but less control. There's no longer a Paul the Apostle who can Sep- say, I talked to Jesus. Separated by more distance over more area. So even with more, more cultures. So even more, more cultures, even more ideas, even more opinions, and no Paul. Now what? There, now there's no Peter. Now there's no Thomas. Even though there'll be people who will later write, pseudepigraphical false Gnostic gospels about them claiming that that's what Peter said. Um, the, the reality is it's not after Paul and after Peter and after James that there is this move away from what Paul was teaching. Paul's writings clearly indicate he thinks they're moving away now. He, he is struggling against this 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 movement away from true doctrine while he's alive. And we can't really point to the great Christian theologian that came right after him that would have stemmed that tide. You know, a century later, you can get to Origen and Justin Martyr, but you only have to read a little bit of Origen, well, a little bit of Justin Martyr to realize he isn't Paul, right? And nor does he have the breadth that he did. Origin's another story. Maybe we'll talk about him some other day. 
But for this first uh, episode of Joseph Smith and the Restoration, I think it's important that we establish that it's not a crazy thing to believe that God would allow the church that Jesus set up to go into apostasy. It's in fact what you would conclude reading what's in the Bible. Just reading the letters of Paul, the conclusion you'd have to come to is Paul is really struggling with trying to keep people to believe the right things. What's going to happen when there is no Paul? Now, of course, a Catholic would argue, well, what happened is we got that doctrine a little bit more streamlined and we got everybody on the right page and, you know, we, we got rid of a bunch of heretics and we burned a few and we, we staked another and, and we got it to where there's no more heresies. A Protestant would argue, well, no, Paul was a true Christian and there were always people who had the right faith in Jesus. It had nothing to do with popes and nothing to do with bishops and nothing to do with anything. It was just that there were always people who had proper faith and because they had proper faith, they were the church of God. So there was never an apostasy away from the church Jesus set up because the church Jesus set up was just, do you believe? Those are wildly varying arguments, obviously. And yet in both cases, they, they don't take into account what Paul is clearly laboring under already. And not just Paul, James in, in, in the Bible as well. I mean, the, the, the epistle of James is not everybody's doing great. You guys are killing it. This is amazing <laughs> with how well you're living Christianity. Great job, right? The epistle of James is, you realize you have to actually do things right. You don't write that to someone who's doing something. You don't write to someone who is, who's already visiting the sick and the elderly and saying, why don't you ever visit the sick and the elderly? You're saying that to them because they're not doing it. The, 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 the reality is with so such a, a rapid spread of Christianity with no real easy way of an organized central control of the theologies. There's no correlation. There's no churchofjesuschrist.org. There's no handbook of instructions. There's no uh, you know, salt lake that people can go to to ask a question. And eventually there's not even any apostles. There are men and women who are desperately trying to live the gospel the way they think it's right. But again, all of you and I know people in our lives who are really well-meaning, who are really sincere in what they believe, and they're totally wrong. Sincerity in and of itself is not evidence of being right. You can be absolutely sincere and absolutely wrong. Those two things can be the same. So as we talk more about it in, in this podcast, we're going to talk about the unfolding doctrines that come up in the absence of these apostolic leaders in the church and what happens with them and how that will eventually lead to the Reformation and that Reformation will eventually lead to the prophet Joseph Smith having his question. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.